0: We may not be a couple of Ellis bitches, but we are still here to talk about Lana Del Rey today. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we are kicking off our folklore themed month because I'm going to the Eros Tour in less than two weeks, but we're not there yet. We're going to be discussing to kick it off Lana Del Rey's. Norman fucking Rockwell. This was my pick. I picked it because one of the main collaborators of Folklore, Jack Antonoff, played a really heavy hand in this album. And in fact, when I first heard Folklore, this was the first album I kind of thought of. I was like, this kind of reminds me in some ways, not 100% the same thing, but in some ways really reminds me of Lana Del Rey's Norman fucking Rockwell from the year before. And- I mean it makes sense that it would. It's the same producer, but even
1: with the same producer, it does. It strikes a lot of the same tones and just feelings musically. I definitely can see where you were going. For for everybody, we gotta, as we do sometimes, we got a little bit of ahead of ourselves before we even started. And I said to Charlie, you know, I really thought I was getting a different Lana del Rey than I got on this album it was the first time all the way listened for me and and i was pleasantly surprised but i said to him i was like what a great album to pick going into folklore because for me it does it has that somber feel and and it really uh it speaks to folklore so good pick on this one
0: i'm glad to hear it. and uh, yeah it was quite a change now for those who don't know because i know Some of our listeners might not be too familiar with Lana Del Rey. She's not necessarily what you'd call a pop artist. She's been like, she's very well known, very well respected, but she doesn't have that many actual big pop hits as opposed to like a Taylor Swift. She doesn't have that because that's just not her. She has very much like an indie kind of following, but she's very successful in that realm. But when she first started... She described herself as a gangster Nancy Sinatra. You can see that. (laughs) Yeah. And that was her initial sound when she first came into the public consciousness. It's like, I'm going to do these kind of ballad torch songs, but they also have trap and hip hop beats to them. And that was the initial hook. And that sound has diverged a bit over time. And it really... Did here. Um. So this was Lana Del Rey's first time working with Jack Antonoff, and there isn't really a crazy backstory behind the album. It really was just business as usual. This is her fifth studio album, and uh, amongst her fans, it was anticipated. I really wasn't following her at the time. I mean, she was one. I heard a bit about her when she first came to prominence. I heard like "Summertime Sadness" and "Young and Beautiful." did cross over to the pop hits top 40. And I did hear those, but she was just somebody I knew who she was. I didn't really know her. I had a friend of mine, Arielle, tell me in 2018, oh, you would love her. You have to listen to her. And she played me one song, Gods and Monsters. And it was a cool song, but I didn't go back into it until this album was released in August of 2019. Because um The acclaim for this album was pretty overwhelming immediately. Like it was immediately being called a classic.
1: Yeah. I look back trying to find if her fans were expecting this kind of album from her, but all I could find was critical acclaim. That leads me to my question to you. Do you think her fans knew what they were going to get?
0: I mean, this is a change because after this, I did listen to the preceding albums. This definitely is a change. From it, um, I'm thinking maybe they had a different idea once they may have heard she was working with Antonoff a lot on the album. They thought, okay, we might be getting something new here, not just the same people she's been working with before. And um, it'll be something new. But even this doesn't sound like I'm mostly familiar with his work with like Bleachers was I'm a bit familiar with and obviously he did songs with Taylor Swift but up to this point they were very pop songs he did for her it wasn't quite what we got here I
1: heard I did the same thing you did or or you were talking about after this I went back and listened to the stuff that I hadn't heard before through the the four albums coming up and I I would have to say, if I was her fan, other than I couldn't find it, Like unless she said, hey, I'm going to do this, I don't think I would have expected this. I think it would have been a little bit of a a shock at first um, as one of her fans. I'm not saying she changed herself in its entirety, but what I'm saying is, as you had said before, those hip-hop-laced beats and the hard edge of those wasn't here.
0: No, not at all. And this wasn't the first time she had abandoned that sound, let's be clear. But the previous album, the the one preceding this, Lust for Life, that had a lot of hip hop on it. That had collaborations with rappers. And that one wasn't quite as well received as the ones before it. So that might have prompted her to change direction. I don't think everybody was expecting her to go 60s, 70s, psychedelic, soft rock on them, but that was what she did. But it's very smart because she still does work with a lot of the themes that her fans were used to hearing from her in her lyrics from an evolved perspective, but that should be expected because artists evolve and their fans grow with them a lot of the time. And I think that was very smart of her to do to not just do the same thing and have your fans grow with you but you're absolutely right there's very little if any hip hop present on this album but yeah the acclaim for this album was immediately overwhelming it was like inescapable on my facebook i just kept seeing this album is fantastic you have to listen to it and i was like okay i think i might have to listen to it actually cuz i just was like what what's all the hype here and I did, and I actually, for the most part, felt this lived up to the hype. And that doesn't happen all the time, because it's so easy to put something on a pedestal. But this actually checked the boxes for me, and it was nice to have a more modern spin on some of those classic Laurel Canyon songwriters, like your Joni Mitchell, or your, oh. Um, that's a big reference point throughout this album, or right. even your heck even Crosby stills Nash and Young it's a more modern take on that somewhat and those were artists I was exploring quite a bit myself around that time so it was nice to find something current that fit in with that sound that I was finding myself enjoying more and more and exploring more
1: yeah she she cites Crosby stills and Nash in, in a a little blurb inside of this, but I found a lot of that. I'm glad you said Mitchell because I, I really found a lot of Joni in this, but I found a lot of that real classic folk Americana writing ability of the ability to use everyday sentences, everyday thoughts, everyday pictures inside of the writing and make it seem extraordinary because of the the piece that it's inside of. Yeah. Which screams to the Norman Rockwell esqueness of this whole entire piece. You know, I don't think anyone could have picked a better title for this album.
0: Yeah. And it's a different title for an album. Like when I first heard it, I thought, I've never heard of an album even closely titled Norman fucking Rockwell, but yeah. it's an album about art and the American dream. And who better to represent that than Norman Rockwell? But we have to show that this is a bit of a change on that, because we're going in a different direction, because, I mean, it's still Lana Del Rey, and the lyrics are pretty frank and they have some rough language. So your grandma who loves Joni might not love this because of that, but it's an evolution of uh, the sound. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and um, to speak further to this album being an instant classic, Rolling Stone put out their updated list of the 500 greatest albums the year after this album came out, and this album was in the 300s range, and it had been out a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, look at the top 50 albums of that year or the top 25 albums of that year from most of the major publications. And she's in the top 10 for this album on almost every one of them. And one of them, she came in number one. Yep, I think, I, I you know, I should have had that handy, but I'm pretty sure it was a top 25 that she ended in number one, which was was mind blowing to me just because. Like you said, you know, we do these quick wiki read-throughs before, or I do, before my first listen, and the critical reception here was just mind-blowing. Like, what? whoa, okay, well, I'm about to listen to, I guess, a classic, the way everybody was talking, and it did. Like you said, for the most part, I really believe it, it, it made it up there.
0: Yeah, and yeah, it was 321 exactly on this Rolling Stone list, and there were a couple other 2019 albums on that list but they were a lot lower than that and Lana Del Rey is not somebody who's been nominated for a ton of Grammys but this acclaim was too much to ignore this was nominated for album of the year it did not win I think it should have but um I mean it it just didn't quite have the clout of some of the other nominees I think was the issue because Billy Eilish, being a new artist, I think came in with a lot of clout for Grammys that year.
1: Yeah, we always get into these conversations of like, man, it's tough, you know, but that's what the Grammys are all about, you know, the, the highest level. It definitely... It was a contender. It was a serious contender in my eyes. You know, it's just tough out. It ends up like that. I I found those numbers I was looking for and and I underestimated it more than it actually hit. It hit number one that year uh, three times. Pitchfork, Slant and The Guardian had it in their top 50 best albums of the year. Number one. Yeah mind blowing.
0: Yeah, and it also it was unsurprisingly the most named album in the year-end rankings of 2019. And that doesn't shock me. I feel like I could have told you that. I'm like, yeah, this was the most acclaimed album of the year. It was pretty inescapable in that regard, even if it wasn't all over the radio or whatever, but
1: exactly, the climate of 2019, I would have never said like if that was a trivia question, what was the most named album? No way I would have done touch this.
0: No, the people would have probably thought, like, Billie Eilish, maybe heard. Ariana Grande. Of course. Not this, but it is. Yeah. And it's got a devoted fan base all of its own. And that's kind of how Lana Del Rey is. She's a bit more of a fringe artist in that regard, though she's about as big of a fringe artist as you can get, is yeah, the it, difference there.
1: Fiona Apple always kept coming up in my head as I was listening to this one too.
0: That actually that makes sense as a comparison somebody who has has a very wide fan base. Her albums do pretty well sales-wise, but she doesn't have a lot of big pop hits and yeah. that's you could say a similar thing about Lana Del Rey in some ways, but yeah. With that being said, I'm kind of ready to dive into this bad boy known as Norman fucking Rockwell.
1: As you say, Norman fucking Rockwell, before we dive in, just in case anybody didn't know who we were talking about when we said Norman Rockwell, this was how from 19, let's say 1915, 1918, throughout World War II, his paintings that were... In Boy's Life or on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, this is how the mass majority of the populace of America got snapshots into Americana. These were windows. These, these portraits are these not, well, portraits sometimes. But, I mean, this is the guy who gave you Rosie the Riveter. This is the guy that was on the front, like I said, of the Saturday Evening Post. This is the way we looked at Americana, period. Uh, throughout up until like the the 50s and I again I can't say enough how much I think it's a fitting title just because of that we're gonna see it let's dive on in
0: yes we're taking on Americana and deconstructing it at times too so the album begins with the title track Norman fucking Rockwell the song is not about Norman Rockwell Um, I would say that this is definitely An ironic love song, because she's basically saying that her man's mediocre and this whole time. And it's this beautiful piano composition, but it has one of the most memorable opening lines of any song ever. She comes right out of the bat with it. I am not going to repeat the line because my mother's listening to the podcast.
1: <laughs> I was waiting for you to to go at it, but no, yes, we're, no, we're, look we're it just, up for yourselves if you'd like no, to see.
0: It. I just I just can't say that when I know that because it's it's too it it goes there though off the bat and you don't expect it to come out of this almost angelic voice singing in this high soprano but that's what happens and uh, i mean it's just very tongue in cheek it's like your poetry's bad and you blame the news kind of thing um it's just kind of a humorous look at it all but at the same time it has this beautiful piano background production to it and uh, i mean it doesn't it's a lot of this album i would say could be described as dreamlike in some ways but These lyrics don't sound like a dream. It helps ground the song, I think. And I mean, I think it works pretty well, frankly. I think it's a strong opener for what we're getting into here.
1: Yeah, which is, for me, a little bit weird to say, because I agree with you as a strong opener. But as we've been subject to in in a lot of our albums, we usually start off or when you and I Uh, agree on a great opener we usually start off with something way more tempo and and musically grabbing I will say this is a C major at 77 beats per minute and that's it's a pretty slow start to an album that being said this one immediately grabbed me in the feels Uh, it really hit home as far as listening to it and reading it in a poetry sense I connect to the guy she's singing to you know so caught up when I was a younger guy, sometimes in relationships with a beautiful woman, it was so caught up in my own blues that I end up painting her blue. And you know, even though she would be there throughout, like Del Rey is, or the character narrating this story here, uh, is it hits home. It hits home. So it took on an extra level for me. The piano work here is. Really beautiful. And I'm gonna say that a million times because that's what she does. But the orchestral accompaniment, like you said, it really has a a look back or a nostalgic feel to it. It's it was a solid, solid opener. And then going back and reading about her and, and who she was and how she felt, and even some of the things she cites throughout this, this album really has a way to translate itself to me as a full piece. I'll say it here because it'll come to fruition closer to the end, but a full circle into love and the American sense of that love that, that Norman Rockwell loved. that it really does.
0: Yes, I agree. And I like that you mentioned the character. I do want to point something out again, for those who may not know. um, Lana Del Rey is not her real name. It's Elizabeth Grant and, more so than any artist that we've ever covered here before. This is somebody who very much combines fiction and her own personal life in these songs. It definitely blurs the lines between these two. And it's kind of hard to tell, but it makes it all the more interesting. I think that's one of the things I like the most about her music is that it's so mysterious in that way. But I think that's an important distinction to make because parts of these songs are autobiographical other parts are not perfectly perfectly said yeah i just wanted to point that out but um this song was actually nominated for song of the year at the grammys and it lost to billy eilish's bad guy yeah
1: <laughs> you know me i love eilish man and You're i love bad Guy too but oof, it's a tough one. it's a tough one.
0: It, it is there were some very strong songs that year i'm not a huge eilish fan myself but i mean bad guy is a catchy song i can see why people like it but this one just floors me yeah man i, I have to say that's a tough i don't know if i agree with that one bad guy yeah. is a very
1: well-produced song and it's a very catchy and it's perfect for eilish but who you guys who that's a tough one that's it is
0: It is. It really is. But anyway, it was an unfortunate loss, I would say. But we're going to move on and not stay in those blues for too long, except we're moving on to different ones with our next song. Mariner's Apartment Complex. This is definitely our first um, somewhat psychedelic moment on the album. Definitely psychedelic folk. And it even references Candle in the Wind, which I'm sure was intentional reference to Elton John for sure. Um, And this one, she's writing about being a man's emotional support, which is a take on the traditional gender role in that the woman's more emotional. It's portrayed as often in Americana. The man's supposed to build her up. But in this song, it was inspired by real life for her. It was inspired by her standing outside of an apartment complex with a man Who was really down, but she was kind of down, but not as much so. And uh, she's that's why she's singing in the song, I'm Your Man, which I think is really cool.
1: It, It definitely is. This is a biographical piece. Like you said, you know, she blurs the lines, but this one came straight out of her life. I love, I'm paraphrasing, but she was talking about this, I believe, on an interview when she aired it for the first time with BBC and was like, hey, I'm so glad that I get to share this one because this one I sort of wrote out of just life. Didn't know I was going to share it. Now I get to share it with everybody. This is a true look into her life. And this is another one where you look into that love. uh, You look into, I have this character at like an 18 to 21 year old sense in my head. And I don't know, man, I, I, I can relate. I can, I can see that there. I can see, I've, shit, I've lived those those instances so far. And uh, it she doesn't stop getting me. Uh, you haven't heard me really talk hard about, even though we're only in the second song, talk hard about composition or pace yet because there are places in this album, and this is maybe the first one that is done in another place. And we we do the, like, it's done here and it's done better. But this, this one, I'm just putting a pin in it. This is a sound that we'll hear a little later, and I love both times. I can't help but love them both times. On this one, though, I get a little bit more of a country feel on the background of it. But yeah, that psychedelic, the vanishing string effects throughout the composition—it's it, neat. It's neat. There's a there's a different feel altogether from her. It's it's eerie. It's eerily connectable, in my opinion as well. I can see why this this cult. I'll use the word cult but this cult following for her, or her fans. I can see where this comes from because she's such a powerful writer. And Then he, we see it again here in number 2 in, in Mariners.
0: Yes, we do. Um but one thing I will say about pacing, as strong of a song as this is, I do think it's unfortunately a bit overshadowed by the songs surrounding it. I'm
1: totally with you. There's something that I think she struggles with more than once on this album.
0: I I would agree, but um the next one Is just a song that there's no surrounding. Um, But part of that is because of its life. It is the song I referenced in our intro, Venice Bitch. This song clocks in at over nine and a half minutes. Um, And that was resisted by her management, she said. She actually wanted to release it as a single. And they said, you can't put out a nine and a half minute song as your lead single. And she (laughs) said... At the end of summer, some people just want to drive around for 10 minutes and get lost in electric guitar. And <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of the song. And she yeah. got her way. I didn't hear it till the album, but this one, oh man, it's there's a lot going on here. Um, I mean, it starts off just as a pretty traditional folkish ballad, I guess, with. Some Americana references, including Norman Rockwell, of course. And then, yeah, it goes into this whole electric guitar psychedelic second half for the most part, I guess you could almost say. And uh, I mean, it's just a song that takes you to another place. And the vocal definitely takes on the dreamlike quality. If any song here would be described as ethereal It would be this one. I honestly, the first time I heard this song, I was just floored. Because to fill out 10 minutes of a song is, well, for one, that's not an easy task. And especially to keep attention for that long. I am very quick to say on this show, this song went on for too long. This song does not. It doesn't at all. I don't think oh. any of it's wasted. Not one second wasted because it just it's such a complete piece and everything in it is totally intentional. I feel like I'm i am having a hard time even explaining it just because I find it so powerful. Um, if you haven't heard the song, stop what you're doing right now, listen to it, and then come back. Because I think this is a song everybody should hear at least once. It might not be for everybody, but there's truly nothing else quite like it. And uh, I just love it invokes eras of past. We even get reference to Crimson and Clover. And just this beautiful soundscape of uh, acoustic and electric guitars, Uh, and waves, and of all of it, all of it.
1: All of it. I mean, starting from the play on words of Venice Beach, Venice Bitch, I had already chuckled going into listening to it, and then boom. The acoustic finger-picking behind is, in my opinion, American folk gold. And then it really does, it mixes it up with this psychedelic guitar eeriness that immediately for me hits my subconscious listener with like uh, vibes of turmoil or struggle but truly it is a full nine minutes and 37 seconds that in my opinion you wouldn't even believe past unless it was pointed out to you that's how that's how full this is i gasped earlier and i won't even edit that out i'll leave it in so people can hear but I thought for a second you were saying that this song went on too long. And I very rarely, you know, we talk about this all the time where we try to not show what our opinion is on the video to each other. Uh, but I I was flabbergasted. <laughs> I thought that's where you're going. I'm glad it wasn't. Um, Real Marcus of Rolling Stone, I feel, sums this up in a quote, the best I I could have never done it like this. But anyway, he says, this one opens like a love letter, prosaic and direct. And then a little more than two minutes in, it begins to swirl. And you could be listening to an affair that began years ago or has yet to start. As the song goes on, it turns into a series of reveries suspended by the gorgeously sustained sound of liquid guitar feedback. It's just the feeling of a series of clouds passing. Turn your head, look up again, and the last one you saw, the one that looked like a face, is already gone. This, this is why even Charlie said it, he has such a hard time explaining it because it's this wild, transcendent beauty. I, I rarely say stuff like this about one single song, but it really is. It's this transcendent beauty that is is almost fleeting, even though it's right there on the record, which is crazy.
0: Yes, yes, it is. And um, unsurprisingly, this is a beloved song in her fan base. And actually, a demo version of it closed out her most recent album. But it's much shorter than this, of course. Of course, I would say, unfortunately, because nothing beats the final version. No, phenomenal song. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, you may be asking, how the hell do we follow that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, yeah, who, who I mean, track three, we've got 11 more songs to go, believe it or not, but here we go. Our next song is uh, called fuck it. I love you. This was the last song actually done for the album. And, uh, she described it as a fun thing to put together and, uh, There's two separate versions of the song, actually. There's the single version, which contains surf drums, and the album version, which does not. And uh, I find it funny that she called this a fun thing to put together because these lyrics are pretty much about being in a codependent junkie relationship. And uh, that's not relationship goals, folks. But not the first time that drugs and relationships have come into the Lana Del Rey uh discography here but what I like about this song is that we get to the outro and it has these heavier lyrics about veins and whatnot and it's juxtaposed with just that airy fuck it I love you chorus and it makes its point very well through contrast and um I really appreciate it it's definitely pretty breezy not as heavy as other songs on the album and not even the best summer song on the album, but I think it does what it needs to do. And I think it's nice to have a kind of lighter moment on the album, even if the lyrics are depressing as hell.
1: I do as well. I, I failed in my, my loving of the, the song prior. I failed to go into where I thought the narrative of the love that we've seen this relationship that we've seen since the start of the album for the, the love of this relationship start to, Take a turn for the worse. Um, in Fuck It, I Love You, I see, from what I got from it, it felt like a rambunctious tirade when you're fed up with what you're in as far as that love goes, and just this explosive Fuck It, I Love You. I, it For me, was more like a love song to California than it was so much so as a love song to a certain someone. But I found that explosiveness of her getting out of that inside of his love, love song to California. And I think I'm so glad you brought it up because I think that's where the Venice Beach, Venice Beach has a uh, has a bad track record with intravenous drug use throughout its homeless scene and and or even just its scene period. So I tied that in from what I took as far as it being a California love song. Um, I listen to both runs on it. Um, I mean, Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers plays the drums on this track and fitting song. I I like it with the surf drums a little bit more and it lends to to my listening of it as a California love song. But this song, you're right, even though everything I said, and this is the the way it goes with Lana Del Rey for me, even though everything I just said had a heaviness to it, this track does have an air of levity um, that we haven't found yet on the album. And you're right, it is important, especially going on in this this circle of love, I'll call it at this point.
0: (laughs) Yes, because... We need some happiness on the album. Uh, early Lana wouldn't have said that, but by this point we need some optimism. And uh, we're going to continue that good old summer vibe with the ultimate California band in her mind and that of many others, a cover of a Sublime song. This one is Do in time. And uh, I mean, even though this album really doesn't evoke the nineties musically, I think this cover still works very well. And that, I mean, her vocal works perfectly for We're going to do this laid back reggae kind of song here. And she's just going to do her thing on it. She's just floating over it. It sounds effortless, even though I'm sure it's not. But she's just floating over. And we're going into this laid back Venice Beach kind of vibe. We're not going to go into the drugs here. This is just good times, relaxing The hardest drug they're probably thinking of here is weed, I'm thinking, in this song. And they're just relaxing, have a good... It might be more, knowing it was sublime, but who who, who knows?
1: (laughs) Regardless, you know? Yeah. I mean, what a great cover, period. I'll start off right there. Speaking to the 90s sound, she's just three years younger than me. And I think some of the connection I get has to do with that has to do with living through the same sort of time period Um, and that being said this song played a crucial part in that time period in my life so for her to stick this in there at the point of where I, I talked about her exploding on the last one from the love Throughout this song, it's literally about being jailed inside of a relationship that you're just not about. And, it, and I say not about in the nicest way because the way this song is written, there's references to putting the partner's head under water and really just hardcore stuff that's hidden a lot. And we, we talked about this contrast that is Lana Del Rey to me. This is another one. This not only fit perfectly in here for the narrative of what this character is going through as far as the trials and tribulations of love, but was also just dead on on its way to really take this album in a, a direction we hadn't seen yet. I can't say enough other than the respect that she handled this cover was so super down to the finite values of even having the record scratches uh paired with her psychedelic vibe but paying homage to those original record scratches and they're faint but they're there and I, I really I really enjoyed that about this cover as well.
0: Yes and this cover was a moment that got a lot of positive attention um the surviving members of Sublime and Bradley Knoll's Widow both praised her cover and uh, This one kind of just went viral because it's like, oh, it's a cover of a beloved song. So we're going to listen to it. And I mean, by her standards, this is a hit. It made it onto the Hot 100 at 59 and topped the Rock Airplay chart. So yeah, as somebody who's not really a pop artist, that's a big success. And uh, I mean, I would say it was well-deserved. I think this is one of the best covers I've ever heard of any song. (laughs)
1: that's true man it really is this is not an easy song to cover it it, at at first glance it might be like oh sublime song you know it's pretty simple not really not when you really get down to the song even in the way that the tempo of the lyrics is a contrast to the way that the melody of the song flows is a huge undertaking and she handles it. Shit, some of the lyrics that I didn't even, (laughs) I love when I could actually hear people because back in the day, sometimes in the sublime mix, it was tough for me to make out certain words, but it's neat when I hear her sing this and I'm like, oh, okay, all right. That's what that word was. It's it's cool to hear. She handled it so well.
0: Yeah, and I would also say for that matter, it's her best cover because several of her albums have covers and this one, stands above the rest of them. That's, it's not a contest, actually. Some of the others, they're, they're good, but this is on another level for that. So, but, uh, unfortunately it has to end and we are to move on to a, um, more tender moment, which is Love Song, which is a self-explanatory title. It's a love song. Um, she said she wrote this in half an hour and in her true signature, there's still a lot of self-loathing in this song. Like, she has no problem saying, I'm a fucking mess. But she's celebrating the sound of their love song. It's like, yes, we're, I'm imperfect, we're imperfect, but we work well together and we have this beautiful thing. And I, what I like about this song is so often love songs, they just... It's all positive. It's all, I love you and everything is great and we're soulmates. That's not what this is. It's like, this is an imperfect, messy love, but it's beautiful for us. And I think that makes the song very relatable for the listener because that's real. It's part of her gift as a songwriter is that we can take on a commonly done kind of song, but add these details that make it just down to earth for the listener
1: for me first notes i have on this is the first truly happy love song we have so far and i meant that in exactly the way you said where it's a very open song in the fact even in the fact of the musicality of the song just the piano and her single voice throughout most of it except for some echo effects here and there but it's very wide open feeling wise as well so as she's embracing this love and and the happiness she finds inside of the messy love that it is it really becomes for me the first truly happy love song so far
0: i would definitely agree with that and um i mean yeah <laughs> that's what we've got it she gives us a love song like the title says and uh the last thing i have to say about it is i do think this is a beautifully orchestrated song yeah I will say that. However, the happiness can't last completely forever, as evidenced on our next song, track number seven, our midpoint of the album, Cinnamon Girl. This is not a Neil Young cover, um, but it's about a, frankly, toxic relationship, and it's frankly very heartbreaking to hear her sing... Like, if you hold me without hurting me, you'll be the first one who ever did. It's like, oh my goodness, you've only known men who've hurt you and been abusive. That's just so heartbreaking. And she sings it beautifully. She really works her upper register here to do that. But what I like about this song is, well, one, I think that its production is beautiful. We even have those sounds of the waves on there that just adds so much atmosphere, but I like that this is really an evolution from where we were with Lana Del Rey, because um, this song reminded me, it's a big contrast to her 2014 song, Ultra Violence," which got up quite a bit of controversy because of the line, he hit me and it felt like a kiss. And I can see why that is controversial, but unfortunately, I think that's a real experience for some people. And she was speaking to that, but now we're evolving. It's like, I don't want to be her anymore. Just love me, please. And I think it's interesting how we've gotten there. I will say that.
1: As much as what you just said with the art is art of how, sorry if that one hurt you, you know, uh, the punch was a kiss. As a listener, art is art. You know, you have to take it whichever way. Um, I'm totally with you on the musicality of the song. I mean, Uh, To add to what you had said, I feel like the background percussion in the beginning seems to mimic a heartbeat through like medical equipment. And then it opens up into a brighter take on the same beat and we get this bright feeling of love. Now, I have to be on the other side of the coin as far as what I had taken from, from this song. I didn't feel a sadness at all here. I felt a very hopeful love inside of the same exact thought that you were just talking about of uh, you would be the first that ever did. Yeah. Uh, You know, there, there's a hopefulness, a hopefulness in love inside of that thought that for me guides this ultimate narrative of love throughout this, where we come off of uh, the previous track and and we come the cinnamon girl and she's laughing about the cinnamon on her teeth is coming from a kiss from him. And I really do. I, I feel like it's a hopeful love rather than, you know, being sad for her. I can feel, I can see where your feelings are coming from, but I, I wasn't sad for her here. I, I felt more hopeful for this love, for this character's love.
0: Well, well, that's the beauty of poetry. We can all yeah. interpret it different ways, so. Most definitely.
1: Uh, you know, we talk about her being a character and writing as a character, but over and over again, but every single song, really showcases her ability to do so as a songwriter. It's, it's, yeah. And fun- I can't say enough good things about her songwriting. I really can't. I mean,
0: there's a reason that Rolling Stone UK recently named her our greatest living songwriter.
1: Yeah, that's
0: real. It's because of this stuff right here. It's because it's so real, frankly. And uh, we're, we're just going to keep that reality going with track number eight, How to Disappear. And this one is a true story song in a weird way it's a totally different thing but it reminds me of those early share hits like your gypsies tramps and thieves and that we have this narrative of like it started out with this and we just go 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 but obviously beyond that this is completely different um because she tells of like this actually we we've spent so much time in california on this album. This one takes us back to the East Coast, and that's important because that's where Elizabeth Grant is from as she was born. She is New York, and I feel like she's New York and Lana Del Rey is California, is kind of the way I see it. And she talks about like a couple of the men she knew in New York. I don't know if they're real. They're probably composites of real people would be my guess, but she goes like to California. And again, there's just this blurring about because like, yes, she did go to California, but she doesn't have kids. So again, we're blending it all. Um, this one, I will say, I wouldn't call this a skip. I think it's a very nice song. I do think it's a bit redundant at this point in the album. I feel like these themes have been explored by this point And, uh, This one just doesn't add anything new to it in the way the previous songs have up to this point.
1: Yeah, this is one for me on that line that falls into placement on the album. Um, But also, you're right, it doesn't add much. This narrative was super fun inside of... I took it, and I couldn't really find a lot on this narrative of, of, of meaning behind it, but I took this one as someone's talk with sobriety throughout life. And inside of this love, you have to be able to love yourself. And and some people might say that is sobriety, but I, I I see this character talking about the evolution of drinking beers and then the next one, the watching the fighters fight and the high they get from leaving it all behind. Really a almost like a love song with oneself is is what I put in my notes. Uh, and I, I really dug that because of it. But un- like we said, unfortunately, it doesn't really add much. It's a cool song, but it doesn't add much to this album as a whole here. And it's sad because it is it's a it's a neater song. i do I do enjoy this one.
0: Yeah, it's just when you're surrounded by this much, it can be hard for some to get up out of the pack. But I don't think that's a problem for our next song, which is track number nine, California, We're back there. But this is actually a flip on a song by Joni Mitchell called California. It's one of her most famous songs from the Blue Album. And uh, this is the reverse of that because in Joni Mitchell's California, she is in Europe and she's longing to go home. She misses California. This song is completely different. It's uh, she's singing to her ex and wants him to come to California. And back to America. I recognize some of the parallels, but even more so, like both songs mention Reading, Rolling Stone, and Vogue. And I think that's very intentional. I mean, this is the first really obvious Joni reference on the album, but it's not the only one. We'll mention the other one. And it's just very clear that that's such an influence on this sound. And that's a great book to take from the Joni Mitchell discography, if we're going to be doing this. And uh, she co-wrote this song with Zachary Dolls from The Last Shadow Puppets. She had a band with him and some of the members of that band, along with Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys. And this song came out of that little mini project, which I think is cool. And I would say that this is a response to a fantastic, beautiful classic song. That's a great song in its own right. And that is an accomplishment.
1: Yeah, I have to and I almost said it when when you were talking about it before, but I have to think that all of her instances of of citing anything pop culture throughout all of these narratives is on purpose, like so on purpose, it's not even funny and for me a lot of the genius in her writing Like I was saying before, you know, to take everyday occurrences and everyday thoughts as a beauty or a beauty inside of this poetry is amazing. This one, I love it musically. The strings add this sort of unending crescendo that adds to the cinematic parting of this person. Um, In the circle of love narrative that, that I seem to be building on this album, it definitely sings to looking back at an ex. And hoping they're doing well and hoping that if they ever come through to your side of, you know, your neck of the woods to give a holler because we'll party up like old times and I, I could connect to it there. It's another one where it almost falls short inside of this heavy album, even though it's composed really well. It's not that it doesn't add, but it doesn't add the way the rest of these songs have added. And and that's a heavy weight, but it just doesn't add as much for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, If you can't tell folks, this is one of those albums where you have to make the hard decisions about what songs add the most. It's one of those albums. It Um, really
1: is. It really is.
0: You are not kidding. Um, But we are actually going to get a bit of different creative juice at this point in the album with track number 10, which is the next best American record. She co-wrote this song with Rick Knowles, who is her most frequent collaborator, actually. And uh, we talked a bit about him on this podcast before when we discussed Stevie Nicks's Rock a Little. Go listen to that episode if you haven't already. And uh, this song was originally intended for the previous album that she did, Lust for Life. Uh, and uh, it was reworked quite a bit in between those. So I have to say, I definitely think it would have fit on that album more. I just don't think it fully fits on this album It does reference the eagles and houses of the holy, but this is the gun to the head least favorite for me. I don't hate it by any means, but I just think it overstays its welcome is my biggest quibble about this doesn't need to be almost six minutes long.
1: I'm on the other side of the coin on this one. I really like this one. I think this does a better job. That's tough to say. Like you said, I'm glad you said it coming into this track because this one for me does a better job than California explaining that tone, especially musically. I think this one fills itself out, of course, but not as full as the nine plus track that we had before. But this one really for me was a masterclass in that storytelling that we've been talking about this whole time, I'm talking about Topanga being hot and he just taking these tiny little blurbs and connecting me to, to the experiences of this character. I thought this one was done really well. Um, I loved how at four minutes and 14, we get the littlest bit of the psychedelic sounds and then it moves to like this rolling snare that just marches along until we get this, sound of broken glass which for me is like this full realization of this love lost that she's singing in here and maybe the happiness inside of it but i think that this one sounds off and adds more to the album than than the previous track i i dig this one i dig this one definitely not gun to the head on this one
0: well i'm not surprised you love it it references your beloved houses of the holy
1: it was dancing under my architecture (laughs) 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 but i i you know i at by this point in the album if you guys haven't been able to tell i'm a sucker for it (laughs) and this one this one really took me all the way through the fields just the way it was it was written and and cited I, i dig this one
0: okay Well, um, this idea of this, like, nostalgia, there's a lot of nostalgia in this song. Um, I feel like we've kind of made that clear. And uh, I think part of my thing is it doesn't tackle nostalgia quite as well as the next song on the album, The Greatest. I mean, this one, she, she just goes all out for it. Like, she has no problem saying what she misses. She misses Long Beach, the bar where the Beach Boys went she even misses New York. She just misses this past and she's like, the culture is lit and I've had a ball, but if this is it, then I'm signing off because like, it's just a longing for a simpler time. And I think it's just very real for so many people because We've seen so much change just in our lifetimes and just these past few years. And this song's outro really just sums it up. It's LA is too hot with these wildfires. Kanye's blonde and life on Mars ain't just a song. I mean, it just sums all that up. It seems like this world is getting crazier in a lot of ways. And this is one that's always going to hit hard because any generation can say, I miss the older days when things were simpler, but it's just hard not to when she's pointing out all this crazy shit that's happening circa 2018, 2019, and some of it still is going on.
1: Most definitely. In the sense of this album, I don't know if I I made my point across that the, the prior song was a love lost song for me, but this one is in, in that circle of love. This one is the one where you just get out of a relationship and you miss the way things were before it. You miss the old days, like you said. I think she's genius using the pop term, the culture is lit. Because for me, and over and you know, again, because for me, it just keeps accentuating the loss of the old days. You know, it's a tongue-in-cheek jab at this crazy culture that she's totally done up with as she can go through. And and even those last three lines that you just cited were a perfect summary of the feeling of the whole entire song, in, in my opinion, because they just, they hit home right there. You know, it's all changed. I miss the old days. I, I like this song. I, I think it's one of the most powerful songs on this album. And the fact that it really sings to, to the loss of the old days, there's, <laughs> I know she's only four years younger, and I keep saying it, but she she gets me on this. Like I've lived this this album, you know, and, and very rarely do I come across an album or a set of works like this where it just it sings true all the way.
0: Yeah, this one definitely. And I I don't. Um, Jack Antonoff said this was his favorite song on the album, and I can definitely see why. And his production on it also. Has to be discussed because the lyrics are so powerful, but just everything about it the strings, the fuzzed out guitar, yep. all of it. It's just, it's a beautiful soundscape, really. Antonov creates soundscapes on the songs that he works on with this album. And that's just elevates this beautiful poetry that we're hearing.
1: Agreed. Soundscape is the perfect word for almost this
0: whole entire album. Yes. Most definitely. But our next song is not an Answered Off collaboration. This one was once again written with Rick Knowles. It predates this era a bit. It's called Bartender. And Lana actually first teased this in January of 2018, well more than a year before this album was released. And she said that it doesn't belong to an album. And um, this one, it just, it's a very unique, it's a piano backdrop that's a loop which is a pretty unique choice. It's not something you hear all the time because you can tell that we're just going on repeat here. And um, I yeah, this is the one where she references Crosby stills and Nash. And uh, I think this one also very explicitly references her sobriety because she mentions, I'm going to pass on the wine, but I'll drink cherry Coke. And in real life, Lana is a recovering alcoholic. She was an She had a um, real issue with it when she was a teenager, actually, and has um, been sober off from alcohol for twenty years now. So this one is the one that kind of most explicitly references her sobriety. And uh, back to Joni Mitchell, "Ladies of the Canyon" is a Joni Mitchell album, and that's definitely what she's referring to. There's no doubt in my mind that that's what. She's discussing here. um this one, there have been people who've called this the weakest on the album. actually, that seems to be the consensus. I very strongly disagree. Um it is a bit different from everything else on the album, but it's a cool song in its own right, and it's one that frankly gets stuck in my head all the time. I can just be going throughout the day and I get Lana singing bar to tender just in my head all the time. I don't get the not love for bartender. I'm not here for it. No,
1: I'm definitely not here for it. Weakest on the album is very tough to say, period. But speaking to her sobriety and so much more speaking to the line that you started where she says, I'll pass on the wine, but the cherry Coke that you're serving is fine. And our love is better kept on the vine, you know? I, I dig that. For me, and the reason why I believe that this composition is so much brighter and everybody might think that it doesn't fit here or might be weak is because this song, for me, inside of this whole piece is a new love found. This is love found, but a new love found. And almost in the most, especially in the sense of her sobriety, in the most peculiar spot because it's not where she would expect to find love she's drinking cherry coke in this love uh with a bartender which is is the the perfect contrast there but yeah this one is definitely new love to me and i i think it's one of the finer tracks on the album i i really do it definitely sticks in your head like you said i definitely don't agree with with the I'll use the word haters on this one because I like this song. They
0: are haters. They're wrong. <laughs> that's the hot tea take of this episode. Bartender is awesome and anyone who says otherwise needs to reevaluate their decisions because if they think this is a bad song, I'm questioning their judgment on some other things. That's, that's just all I'm saying. And, uh, but maybe maybe they just... Haven't found happiness because happiness is a butterfly, which is our (laughs) next song. Um, This one was written with both Jack Antonoff and Rick Knowles. So a power trio here. That is fun. Um, The title was actually taken from a quote from the author Nathaniel Hawthorne, best known for the legendary novel, The Scarlet Leather. And this one is really about the fear of falling in love again. I think it's really neat. We go through that new love on the previous and we're now into just that fear of it. And um, hearing this song now, I really couldn't help but think I really wonder if um, Taylor Swift uh, was thinking of this song when she wrote Labyrinth off of Mm *Midnights*, Because that song is also about the fear of falling in love again. And uh, it's just like, you know, I've been hurt before. It's if he's a serial killer, then what's the worst that can happen to a girl who's already hurt? It's like, ooh, powerful stuff there like and it kind of goes there in that kind of extreme way that kind of sometimes dark cynical humor we get from these songs but I think this one really works as well because she's saying like happiness is in her experience at least happiness is fleeting and that's why it's a butterfly
1: yeah Try to catch it like every night. I mean, that line is so great. Happiness is like a butterfly. Try to catch it like every night. And this is, uh, I'm totally with you here. We are at that fear. And I use the word fear lightly because it's that fear of new love. Like you said, uh, I believe inside of this narrative. And it's not something we fear like Freddy Krueger. It's something that we fear because we aren't sure what's on the other side. And it, it could be fleeting. But you're right, Lana Del Rey, man. the The contrast that is is summed up perfectly in that line. It's just she keeps it so dark, and and humorous, like you said, uh, with lines like that. Happiness is a butterfly, as the penultimate track, and with this circle of love and finding a new is, in my opinion, the most perfect place on this album. Track thirteen. Couldn't have been anywhere else on this album, and it is, it found its home right here. Really well done
0: track. Yes, the butterfly went to the perfect place. That it did. It did, and uh, it leads us into our album closer. Track number 14, Hope is a Dangerous Thing for a Woman Like Me to Have, But I Have It. Yes, it's a long ass title, I know, but... (laughs) I promise you, it's okay. So this one is uh, very key. So this, the chorus of this song references the famous poet and writer Sylvia Plath. Definitely an inspiration, I'm sure, into these poetic lyrics. But for those who don't know, it's an important historical reference for this song because clearly she sees herself in Sylvia Plath. But Sylvia Plath's story had a very tragic ending Because Plath took her own life by putting her head in an oven. And so she sees herself as a woman like her, this 24-7 Sylvia Plath. And it's like, well, I'm this fragile person. And a woman like me, like a woman like Sylvia Plath, who was really misunderstood and mistreated, it's dangerous for a woman like me to have because of what I've seen, but I do have it. And uh, I think that's just a really important message because it's acknowledgement that maybe I shouldn't have hope. Maybe I've had a lot of rough things happen in my life. Lana's had some rough times, certainly with drugs and alcohol and relationships. We've certainly heard in these songs. And uh, I mean, I've seen all of this and I should probably be really pessimistic and a lot of her earlier music is very pessimistic and sad girl that's why it was so popular with the tumblr crowd of the time but now it's like I realize that it's dangerous for me to have hope but I still have hope for the future I have hope that I can find happiness what a perfect way to end the album
1: (laughs) yeah I mean with such a simple approach to the album ender musically or a minimalistic approach to the album ender in my opinion she's given us one of the most like intimate looks inside herself on the album or inside this character just this intimate confessional inside of this Sylvia Plath is such a fitting reference in this album but like you said unlike her terrible end of Plath you know Delray lets us know literally by the end line of the album that she has hope uh you know hope for life hope for love and i i'm really like hope for everything else inside of of this norman fucking rockwell version of of life you know that it's such a poignant ender to this story for me this circle of love this this she's on the other side and she's got hope and this time she's got hope no matter what you know she's she saw before it i love it you know serial killer is del rey's Eh, you know i've seen worse (laughs) i love that i i love it that she writes it like that and i love that she delivers it like that and as as minimalistic as it was it's it was a perfect ender perfect ender for this album
0: unfortunately not everyone loved it quite as much as we did because of one line (laughs) You already know what I'm talking about. Come on, people. Um, So the controversial line in question is, shaking my ass is the only thing that's got this black narcissist off my back. And some people thought this was racist. Um, Lana said, none of my songs are about race. And she got very defensive about, perhaps a bit too defensive. She tends to do that on social media. But I mean, not to be a snarky asshole but were you asleep in your high school english class this is common poetic devices here people come on i'm with you I- it's about darkness <laughs> not race
1: uh you know i i don't know why i connect to her so much but you know when you're passionate about something you hell yeah you're gonna sound off and you're definitely gonna sound off there like come on like, wait, what? You're going to jump on three words or four words or however many words in this song and, and act like it's a race song? Like, did, did you, uh, look at me, see? I'm, <laughs> and that wasn't even intentional. I'm going yeah. off right there for her. silliness. Yeah. Silliness, Oh, come on, people, yeah. come on.
0: Yeah, that's all I have to say. That is yeah. not a correct interpretation in my mind. It's like, have you been listening to everything being set up to this point? No way, no way. But um, that is a small thing about the song because it's a beautiful song, and it's the end of a beautiful, beautiful album.
1: It is indeed.
0: So yeah, there we have it. One of those few albums that um, I'm I'm thinking we're both in agreement that it lives up to the hype for the most part.
1: It does live up to the hype.
0: So um, what is your final leather grade for
1: the album? You no, know, I've said it a bunch lately, but i mean it so much more than ever this time this album was really hard for me to grade sometimes the pace of this album could seem dreary sometimes i found myself drifting in thought throughout the songs there wasn't a banger per se or even like a loud sound that took me in a different direction and we've really been privy to that so many times through our album dissections this time though i This challenge was was a really happy moment for me, um, because it challenged me to search even myself more throughout this album. Uh, You know, myself as a musician, myself as a lover of stories, myself as a romantic. This album was more like sitting back and enjoying a book of poetry accompanied by a moving music. Music that never really left me wondering, like, why is this on the album or why is the key not changed here? But in its place, music that let me ride. I'll use the word you used earlier, float upon, while I got to really reflect on the story. But in this case, for the most part, the music is done by the storyteller. And the stories are so compelling that I forget that the writer is also the musician. And that is a beautiful thing for me in this album as well. Uh, you know, I forget to care which one is which. And I started off my experience with this album really not understanding the psych rock label that was put on it. But by the time I finished this album and, and was all done and said, it made me expand my mind and explore me more than some of those psychedelics have ever done. And even though I felt that a few songs might have been in the wrong place, I cannot in any way deny the power of this album and for that i give it an a
0: i um i give it an a as well some people <laughs> might be, some people might be shocked to hear me say that because some you might have thought i would have given a higher grade that have more bangers on them i love my bangers i love the stuff like that but again it's the power of yeah. these songs and these stories and this is an album You have to be in the mood for it. Like, if you want to party, if you want to have some fun, this is not what you're going to put on. I'll go to my Lady Gaga or Beyonce albums we've discussed here for that. That's not what we're going for here. But if you want something reflective that's going to open your mind and to go into another world, into these soundscapes, as I've said, we're not, not a different kind of art than a landscape painting. A different kind of art. You should listen to this album. I think there are a couple songs on here at the very least everyone should listen to once if they're not going to listen to this whole album. This is uh, one of the easiest A's I've ever given. And uh, I mean, this is, again, it's so rare. There have been so many times I've just been disappointed hearing this album is perfect. It's amazing. And I listen to them like, I don't get it. This one I loved it from the first listen, and I just find more the love each time I do listen to it. It had been a while for me to listen to this one again, but I'm glad that I did, and I was reminded of why it's an A.
1: Yeah, uh, very rarely do I find myself so deeply rooted in a narrative, and this one, thank you for picking this one. This was this was a wild one, and especially, we started to say it at the, at the start, but now I can say it with a little bit more uh openness like starting off our month of of folklore this is this is the way you do it this is the way you do it it's going to be tough following this one even for whoever comes along you know it's yeah. going to be tough following this album
0: it, it really it really is going to be but um back to folklore yeah i think this is a definite influence because antelope had worked with taylor swift many times before folklore but i just think that these soundscapes this idea of that that he did with Lana Del Rey. I think we definitely hear that on the Folklore album as well. And um, we'll get there when we get there, but it's not our next album we're doing because we are doing our second ever new release, actually. Um, The other main collaborator on Folklore is a man named Aaron Dessner. He's best known for being a part of a band called The National. And uh, since the success of Folklore, he's been super in demand and so far, the biggest artist to have used his services is Mr. Ed Sheeran for his upcoming album "Subtract," and that is going to be the next album that we discuss. And um, uh, yeah, definitely going to be tough to following. Um, tough to follow this one. I've lowered my expectations from this, frankly, already, and I do anyway for Ed Sheeran because I'm actually. Not his biggest fan, but I am very curious to hear what this album is going to sound like, considering that Death played such a huge role in it.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to see what the uh, old Ed Sheeran has for us. I uh, I enjoy him, you know? I, uh, I'm i not the biggest fan, but I'd like to see. He's another artist that, inside of these group of younger artists, uh, you know, me being such an old man, but these younger artists that I like to hope and see that they have these moments, you know, uh, who knows? When's the last time you put an album two years ago, three years ago,
0: it was a couple years ago. Yeah. And um, well, we're going to discuss, uh, I have some thoughts on that. I think there's some responsiveness into this direction in regards to that, but I'm going to save that for next week. Uh, there you go. Um, Cause I definitely have some thoughts on that, but in the meantime, If you enjoyed this episode of Turntables and Tea and want to hear where we go from here, follow us wherever you're listening to us, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Audible, we're on all of them. And also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast and on Twitter at Turntables Tea. Um, that is where we post updates about what we will be discussing next and some fun stuff related to the albums that we discuss. And uh, we are just looking forward to going on this uh, journey with you throughout this um, folklore month, which is another fun concept month, I think we'll be doing. And uh, I'm very curious to once again, dive into a new album. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. man. Cause I love doing it last time actually with, of Miley Cyrus. It's nice to go into something with no preconceived notions of what it should be and uh, I think this will be a rewarding next episode and uh, lots of great stuff coming up for you so please stay tuned and in the meantime you don't have to do too much math to listen to our next episode. Peace!